So hello, I'm Alex Rockheen. I'm a panelist at Third Known Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity and mental health law. And I'm really pleased today to be joined for the latest of the In Conversation series by the psychiatrist Dr Lucy Stevenson. Um, as people who've watched these before will know, I always think it's much more important that the person I'm, I'm talking to introduces themselves rather than me rabbit on trying to explain what I think they do. So Lucy, over to you. Can you, can you explain to people um, uh, just give us a bit of background and, and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. Thank you. It's um, it's great to be here. Um, so I'm um, a, a trainee psychiatrist um, at, slash psychotherapist uh, at South London and the Maudsley Hospital um, in South East London. Um, but at the moment, I'm taking um, some time out of full-time clinical work to do a PhD at the Institute of Psychiatry. And I'm working on a project called the Mental Health and Justice Project. Um, it's a welcome-funded interdisciplinary project um, looking at key issues um, around the intersection between human rights um, and mental health. Um, and there's lots of different um, sort of projects going on within within sort of the overarching project. But the one that um, I'm particularly focusing on, focusing on um, is looking at um, designing a model of advanced decision making um, for people with um, bipolar. Um, and I'm working on that project um, uh, with Alex, which is fantastic, um, and also um, Gareth Owen, um, who's a psychiatrist, um, and um, Tanya Gurgle, um, who's a philosopher. Um, so we've, uh, we've really got a, a mix of um, expertise um, involved um, in, this, in this particular area of work, which, is, which has been fantastic. Um, so, so yeah, so at, at the moment we're... Um, yeah, we've, we've been involved in collecting some data on people's opinions about this project. And my main work at the moment is really um, getting down to the nitty gritty of creating a workable template for people and trying it out in practice. Brilliant. Thank you. So I really want to sort of get in, stuck into some of the, the, that nitty gritty, some of that detail. But just really briefly, thinking about advanced decision making, why, in particular in the context of bipolar, why, why have we... Why are you? Why, why are we so interested in the context in particular in bipolar? And then what kind of advantages do we think that advanced decision making might offer in, in, for people with that condition? Yeah, so um, advanced decision making um, is really probably most commonly used in, um, in physical health settings. Um, and just a little word on, on the language. So, so we're talking about advanced decision-making, which is kind of the umbrella term that we've taken to use within the group to describe any kind of activity that is, that's about planning in the present for future care and treatment. And the motivation for planning in the present for future care and treatment is that you anticipate that although you can make decisions about your care and treatment in the present, there's likely to be a time when because of, um, because of, your, because of illness, um, that you become um, unable to make those care and treatment decisions for yourself. You lose the capacity to make those future care and treatment decisions. Um, and so within physical healthcare, um, this is quite commonly done um, within um, the context of dementia um, and end of life care, palliative care settings. Um, and people um, tend to have overall quite a, a linear pattern um, of loss of capacity. So, so they might, so for example, they might um, 
be given a very difficult diagnosis um, at a time when they still have um, capacity to make care and treatment decisions, but they know that as, they, as their health deteriorates, um, that they're likely to lose that capacity and they're um, sadly unlikely um, to, 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 to regain that capacity to make decisions as their condition deteriorates. Um, and of course, this makes it very important for people um, to make those decisions um, in, in the present, in the way that you know, they, they want to make them for themselves. In mental health settings, it's a slightly different scenario. So for people living with um, severe mental illnesses um, like schizophrenia and particularly people with living with bipolar, they can have quite a pronounced pattern of fluctuating capacity. And that means um, that people can anticipate that although when they're well, they have the capacity to make decisions about their care and treatment, during um, periods when they're unwell, they lose that capacity um, to make decisions. But then after the episode of illness has passed and they're well again, they regain that capacity. Mm-hmm. And over, um, over the lifetime of somebody living with severe mental illness, they you know, sadly, they can expect to have um, multiple episodes, multiple times when they become unwell, when they lose the capacity to make those decisions. And as well as that being very difficult, it also brings some opportunity in the, in the realm of advanced decision making. Because people are having those experiences over and over again, they get the chance to learn um, from those difficult experiences um, and develop an expertise about what are the best care and treatment decisions for them when they become unwell. And so they have the chance to actually build some quite sophisticated and informed advanced decisions that are right for them, that are personalised to them um, when they become unwell. Um, and so this is something, as I said, that's it's kind of been, it's quite well established within physical healthcare, but it hasn't been, um, it's not so well understood, so well practiced um, within the field of mental health care, which is odd when, because it seems so particularly suitable. Um, so we're trying to bridge something of, of that gap. Oh, thank you. That's such a, uh, it raises so many interesting and important issues. I think one of the things I'm really interested in grappling with and, and, and helping you helping us grapple with is we've obviously got in, in the physical healthcare, we've got, as it were, it's easy. You've got the Mental Capacity Act. I mean, capacity may be difficult at sometimes, it's, as it were, easy. The mental health zone, it's not quite so easy because you're grappling with, for instance, the Mental Capacity Act, the Mental Health Act. And I know in our work, we've been really, you know, that's been one of the sort of issues that we've been grappling with. And I'd be really interested in your reflections, because I know you've been, you've been thinking very deeply about this, about your reflections on, on how you help people try to navigate. Yeah, yeah. I think that's definitely the right word. Um, uh, it, it, navigation is, is required because it is it's complex territory for professionals to understand, for families to understand, for service users um, to, to, to understand. And what we've really wanted to do is empower service users to make um, advanced decision-making documents that have the maximum legal weight possible that's afforded by the Mental Capacity Act and the Mental Health Act and the maximum clinical weight possible. Um, And I think maybe I'll start with what I've found talking to service users about it. So service users um, that we've done focus groups with and workshops with, they're actually quite familiar with the Mental Health Act. They know, they can remember 
um, mental health act assessments they have. They know that you have a social worker, that you have a couple of doctors about it. They know what happens when you have a mental health act assessment and you know they have very strong feelings about it often and they know that the consequences that you often get admitted to hospital and you're given medication against your will they know the length they often know the length of time they know what a section two is they know what a section three is um, people haven't heard of the mental capacity act a lot of the time people have been astonished when i've said to them in workshops every time you would have been seen in A&E, you will have had a capacity assessment. And quite frankly, people were incensed that they didn't know that their capacity was being assessed, that they weren't ever told that someone was calling their decision-making into question and that they were going through a four-point um, you know, assessment checklist, that a comment on their capacity was being made. Um, and they, they sort of, they felt that that was a real, um, a bit of a betrayal really because at least with you know because i think they, they were saying at least with a mental health assessment they know it's happening and although it's pretty grim you know they're, they're kind of aware of what's going on they're aware that the law is being used but that's just hasn't been the case for them um with with the mental capacity assessment um and so a lot of the work in designing the template that we've been making designing um the guidance has been really about um making it very clear to service users what their what their rights are un, under the mental capacity act to um, make advanced statements to make advanced decisions to refuse treatments to, to let them know about the limits of that um, because of course once somebody is detained under the mental health act um, that particularly those advanced decisions to refuse treatment no longer hold any legal weight and that is something that um, service users, when, when, when that's been explained to them, they feel pretty angry about that, um, especially when they're aware that it's different if it's a decision about physical health treatment. Um, they're, quite, they're pretty astonished and pretty angry about that. Um, but, but nonetheless, they, they want to know what, what their rights are. Um, and so, yeah, so, so, so we've been doing a lot of work trying to explain that to people and really um, uh, the way we've kind of um, got about that is to try and make a space for people to have more involvement in mental capacity assessments by coaching them through how to write a personalised mental capacity assessment to, to help them describe for themselves what, um, what they look like when they know they've lost the capacity to make decisions. And of course, knowing that is often something they only know in hindsight, looking back. But actually, when you ask people, a lot of them know very clearly, when I have this mental experience, I know that I've lost the capacity to make decisions about my care and treatment and coaching people through putting that down. I'd say, I think that, if I may, just that's one of the things I personally find most interesting as an aspect of this work is, is a group of people is working with a group of people who are able to very clearly to identify a point at which they themselves would say i don't think i've got capacity i mean yeah. it gets into this really almost catch-22 philosophical situation that if you could say that does that really mean you've lost decision making capacity but if you're listening to the and the reading and, and talking to the, the, the individuals concerned it's so clear that they really do identify very very strongly this is a point when and I think yeah. that's one of the things I think that, that the idea of 
of being able to relay to a professional who may be having to think about your capacity, mm -hmm. actually these are signs that you know what, I think I might not have it. Mm -hmm. is, is, is something really, I'm, in terms of working that through into actual practice, especially widespread practice carries with it its own mm -hmm. challenges. But I think it's one of the, the really positive opportunities which comes out of the, the sort of work that you're getting involved in. And, and here we take a bit of a deep dive because for people with bipolar, um, they, you know, they often value the mental states they experience when they're unwell. And so, you know, we've come across people who say, well, yes, when I'm manic, I don't make decisions in the way that I usually do. But that mental state of being manic is valuable to me. And actually, you know, a lot of them will say, sure, I make some bad decisions about finances when, when I'm unwell. I, I don't do what I'm supposed to do. But actually, it's a valuable experience for me. And in some sense, um, they do value some of the decisions they make, even though it's, it's not in line with the decision making they would have um, when they're unwell. And so that, that's been sort of starting to make a few documents with people. That's been quite a complicated thing to talk through with them about how they express that. Um, and some people in the focus groups, we sort of had um, you know, professionals talk about, well, yeah, pe people, um, people are quite clear that they do know when they've lost capacity to make decisions, but they don't see the sense in writing it down for professionals because then they'd sort of be giving the game away <laughs> um, to the professionals. Um, and so, so the sort of that's it comes down to that this is a, another thing that we try to introduce in the document is around a personalised assessment of harms. Mm -hmm. You know, what purpose? What's the purpose of, of writing a personalised capacity assessment? Well, it's because people want to have some control about the consequences of, of what happens when they're unwell. And of course, there might be a divergence of opinion between service users and professionals about which consequences are the important ones um, to, to avoid um, in, in, in a crisis. Um, and again, that, you know, that can be quite a complex value judgment that's not always understood by professionals who are unfamiliar um, with service users who, who they're assessing in, in crisis. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think it's, it is absolutely critical. It's the harm aspect. It's not just the, 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 the lack of capacity aspect. So uh, one of the things you've been talking about is process. And I think that's, I, it, it's the process of carrying out this, creating this kind of document, which seems to be but the process is valuable in and of itself, but the process in and of itself is throwing up its own challenges. I mean, you've talked about some of the ones with service users. I wonder if you could just talk about the challenges that you've encountered when you're seeking to explain to clinicians who might who are involved in, the, in, the, in this work, the, the challenges for them in the process. So I think it's one of the difficulties is that superficially it's so simple you know someone just writes down what they want to happen when they're unwell easy um but we've come to realize that um advanced decision making is really quite a complex intervention in that it's different for everyone who engages in it in that it works through time and that it involves you know you have to make the thing, you have to access it, and then you have to apply it. And all of those different steps might be completed by different people. 
who are unfamiliar with how the document was made in the first place, who don't know the service user, who are wrestling with different IT systems, um, who have different interpretations of, of the actual document. Um, and so kind of managing, managing that process, uh, sort of anticipating the complexities of that process and managing it is, is, is quite a task. And so on top of that, the first stage, just making the document, involves a reflective process um, for, for, for the service user um, and one that can be really quite emotional. You know, it's sort of it, for that person, it involves you're asking them to look back and think about some of the most difficult times in their life. Sometimes when they weren't themselves in, in, in their own minds and, and in, in, in the eyes of their family and put that on paper. You know, it's, it's quite quite a vulnerable position um, to, to, to be in. Um, and for some, for some clinicians, actually, that's been a worry and a barrier that going through that process and rethinking through those episodes is going to be quite traumatic and is going to cause a lot of emotional distress. It's potentially going to sort of flare up old wounds and old conflicts between services and professionals. Um, and some people, you know, their, their reaction has been, well, actually, it's, it's just too difficult. You know, go, going through that process is, is too hard. Um, but that's not the reaction that we've had when we've talked to service users about it. Um, and actually, they, a lot of people have said, well, yes, it is difficult, but so is being unwell and not getting the treatment that you really need in a crisis. That's more difficult. And there's a sense of wanting to, um, to, to really redeem, I suppose, some of those very difficult experiences and use them to, to, to improve um, future care, just despite how emotionally distressing it might be um, to, to think through those past issues. Yeah. Gosh, we're scratching the surface of so many difficult and complex things, and I'm conscious that our time is becoming, is becoming relatively short. Okay. I just wanted to, I mean, the, the, the direction of travel, the government has made clear that they, they'd want to introduce some form of advanced choice document in due course. And obviously, one of the things you're flagging up is the kind of complexities around that. I'd be, just, just so people know how they can follow developments. Can you sort of talk a little bit about how people can keep up to date with the work that you're doing? I mean, just give a snapshot of where it is at the moment as of June 2020, and then and then how people can follow, you know, the developments. Yeah, so um, we've done a series of focus groups with um, service users, professionals, family members, um, lawyers, um, psychiatrists, and we've really, through those focus groups, we've gathered a lot of feedback on trying to understand um, some of the barriers, but also some of the solutions to these barriers. Um, and we've, we've also, through that process, we've got a lot of um, sort of active feedback on a draft um, uh, template for advanced decision-making. Um, and that template is called a PACT, um, which stands for Preferences and Advanced Decisions for Crisis and Treatment. Um, and so we've been, we're now at the stage of um, trying that template out in practice as part of a quality improvement project um, in at South London in the Maudsley and also um, sort of doing an in-depth um, qualitative interview study with all the people involved in making the PAC document um, to, to, and following them through time to understand that whole process that we were talking about of making the document, accessing the document and applying the document. And, and the PACT's sort of got a few important characteristics. Firstly, that it, um, it's the service user's document, 
it makes explicit reference to the to the mental to, to the law to the to the legal framework that we were talking about so this that sort of intersection between the mental capacity act and the mental health act and helps the service user it really helps the service user harness those tools for themselves um, it's designed to be um, a collaborative document um, we're talking how we wanted to make help the service user you know harness the legal weight of the document but also the clinical potential clinical weight and the way we've done that is to make it possible for clinicians to endorse what service users have written um, in in their document um, we've been um, so 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 we're kind of we're putting that into practice at the moment slight interruption from covid um, um, but but that's also brought some opportunities um, and particularly around how we make the documents. So we're kind of exploring ways of collaborative working and creating that kind of document remotely, um, which I think actually will mean that it's more accessible um, for, for people, for service users who might find it difficult to get out and about and attend meetings. Um, so that'd be interesting. Um, and, but for, for, for the moment, what we've got, um, what's sort of going to be published any day is our, um, is sort of the, the, the focus group study results, which talk about people's experiences of advanced decision making, the difficulties, and most importantly, how we overcame the difficulties, um, and the you know the, the the details around that, how you actually implement this. Um, and we've also we're also publishing as part of the supplementary material the actual template itself, which is a um, sort of a PDF that anyone can can fill out for themselves, and the guidance documents. Um, and and anyone can use those. You know, service users can download those, professionals can download those, use them in their practice. Um, and obviously, we'd love to have feedback on that if if, if that's something you do. Um, you can follow developments about that on our Twitter feed, which is um, m at m health justice. Um, and we will be um, putting the link to the paper there as soon as it's ready, along with a bit of a chat um, on Twitter with, with a few more details about that. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Lucy. There are so many things I would want to spend more time talking to you about, in particular, the idea of, of digging more into clinical endorsement. But I think you yeah. <laughs> because I think just just to flag, I mean, I will just flag very briefly. It's, it's one of the areas where I think people have the, the biggest challenges at some level, because one person's clinical endorsement could be someone else saying, well, this is a barrier to why shouldn't I be able to make it? Right. And I think I would just reflect when people read the paper, I think it's one of the areas where people will see that, that the most thought has had to go into yeah. thinking about how you strike that balance. Yeah. But thank you so much for your time, Lucy. And I'll put on the, on the bottom of the, the, the page with this uh, in, in the conversation is the, the links to the paper when it eventually comes out. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Lucy.